0: Welcome to We the Women. This is our celebration of the 19th Amendment. Exactly 100 years ago, on August 18th, 1920, the 19th Amendment was ratified, giving women the right to vote. To celebrate, we'll be talking to women from around South Carolina, thought leaders, movers and shakers. We'll ask them about how they have used their voice and what they have done to contribute to our great democracy. Enjoy the conversation. In this episode, Post and Courier tourism reporter Emily Williams interviews Reverend Demet Jenkins, Director of Faith-Based Engagement for the International African American Museum.
1: Thank you so much for, for being here today. I'm really glad that you could be part of this. I'm
2: um, just delighted to have been invited, so thank you.
1: I just wanted to start by asking how you're doing right now and um, and also just your role with the International African American Museum. Um, you're still we're still pretty far from the point of opening but of course uh still working working hard in, in that process so what has this time been like for you and for the museum team
2: yeah it's it's been different um because in my role as the director of education and engagement for faith-based communities i'm traveling i'm going to meetings i'm meeting people attending their events just to do some fundraising and making connections and um, doing presentations and things of that nature. So it's been a little different to kind to, to come to a sudden halt um, where none of that is happening. And so now having to think very creatively, you know, how does that work virtually? You know, how do we use these uh, virtual platforms to still kind of do the same thing, maybe in a, um, a little different way, but still very meaningful? So it's been a lot of um, trying to reach out to faith communities. And the hardest part of that has been because in the beginning of the pandemic, the churches had a big change too. churches, but faith communities um, and houses of worship, they've had to go virtual as well. So they haven't been focused on a whole lot of outreach. They've been focused on maintaining their houses of worship and, and making sure things are functioning and flowing well. So it's been a little difficult trying to connect but things have sort of balanced out a little bit and so these um faith communities have kind of figured out how this works and how we're going to go about doing things how we still do our tithes and offerings so they've been more receptive to taking meetings via zoom and and all the virtual platforms so we're getting there Um, and then planning virtual programs um, so that we don't have to eliminate those. So we've been just, you know, pow wowing, thinking out loud, and trying to figure out how do we do this in this unique way.
1: But what has it been like for you personally? I mean, like you said, um, with. This role you're used to traveling and meeting people, but also I would just think more so in your life in general and your faith life. You used to yes. People, what has it been like for you?
2: It's, it's been hard because I am a people person. I like touching and connecting and talking and, and meeting. And so, um, you know, there's a term called compassion fatigue where, you know, people who've been doing the work and they get really exhausted and tired. So I've been saying kind of, compassion neglect. Um, I feel like I've been neglecting um, or because I don't have the opportunity to go out. I have a 91-year-old dad that I care for. So I have to be really mindful of places that I go and you know how much I do that. Um, and so I feel like I'm being neglected in some way of not being able to touch um, and be with people, because you know people have food drives and you know all kinds of things to help the community, and um, i haven't been able to participate in those, so i've had to rethink like how can I continue to to feel like I'm doing meaningful work without literally being in those places, so I make sure that I email and share the the flyers and let people know that what's going on in the community and um, so I feel like I'm being helpful in that way. But it's been really, really hard. Um, and we've had a fire. Uh, we had a family fire in the midst of all this. So um, so just with COVID, the fire, reconstruction, it's been a lot to contend with.
1: I did want to ask you, too, about um, a really exciting piece of, of good news for, for you and for the the International African-American Museum. And, and and I was there for for this, the Topping Out ceremony,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: you know, celebrates a big uh, construction milestone. Yes. about this earlier, it just felt like such a um, such a big step in that there is a building,
2: you know? There I mean, feels, is a building. It
1: feels more real. So what? Yes, was, what was that day like for you seeing that last beam go up?
2: Listen... It was so spiritual for me. Um, One, you know, it's been 20 years. This project, this thought of, this image of started in the year 2000. So here we are 20 years later. And I often think about the people who have been a part of this project from the from the ground floor from day 1 like as they were imagining and 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 trying to create drafts and you know picture this place that how meaningful this is for them because what what's what once was a dream is now a reality and for for me who have have been a part of this project for 2 years in terms of working there but have been familiar with it for years it's like it's a dream come true Um, You know, and even in the two years that we've been talking about it, we've stood on the soil, we blessed the soil, you know, we walked around and now there's a frame building that's there. So it was just honorable. Um, My 91 year old dad was able to sign his name. um, And just so watching the other folks just come in and sign their names and their loved ones names. I just thought it was just magical, very spiritual, and I just feel like the ancestors are really happy that we have come to this place.
1: How did you come to this role with the museum? Like you said, it's been it's been a couple of years now. How did you end up connecting with the museum?
2: Yeah, so you know, I had always heard about it. You know, I I didn't live in Charleston. Um, I was gone for twenty four years, and I came back in twenty sixteen. And, um, and looking for work um, here in Charleston was, uh, was a little hard, you know, to try to find that right place. And then a friend of mine shared with me that there was a faith-based position that had come open. I was like, really? At the museum? So when I read the job description, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is me. This is who I am. I love, you know, you know, bringing people together and talking about history and connecting people to their history so a friend of mine shared it with me and and it just spoke to me as i read it and two years later i'm I'm here yeah, yeah.
1: you said you um had been away from from charleston for a while but you grew up here.
2: i grew up here yes
1: uh, what was your childhood like in, in charleston where exactly in the area did you go?
2: so Um, My dad retired military, and um, he he and my mother are both from John's Island. So um, even though we lived West Ashley, I spent all of my days on John's Island. Um, My church was on John's Island, and we were very active people in our church. So from youth groups to Sunday school to activities— all of my time was spent there. And because both my mom and dad's families from John's Island, you know, grandmothers, aunts, cousins, uncles, we spent time there. So I, you know, I do a talk um, talking about growing up a Gullah girl and, um, and I just share my roots of of River Road, John's Island and, um, and, and what it was like to grow up with Gullah, Gullah Geechee parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, the kinds of things we've done and, Uh, what's customary for us and culturally customary for us and the foods we ate and why we did certain things. So it was um, truly a blessing to grow up here. I love Charleston. Um, I love John's Island and all of the surrounding islands. And um, it was just, it was meaningful. It was always words of wisdom, being taught and shared with you. I mean, you could just be outside um, running around with the kids, and there's always going to be some elder that's going to share something with you that will carry you through the rest of your life. So um, it was it was great. It was great. I had a very close-knit family, and um, we did everything together. So, so my first cousins on my dad's side are like my siblings because we were just— I mean, cousins just doesn't seem close enough uh, for the time that we spent with one another.
1: I wanted to ask you about uh, your grandparents too. Grandparents were well known here Mm -hmm. in the Charleston area, of course. um, Esau Jenkins, Mm -hmm. your grandfather,
2: grandfather, Um, and his wife Janie Jenkins.
1: That's actually what I wanted to. One of the things I wanted to ask you. Yes. Is I think we hear a lot about. Esau Jenkins and, mm-hmm. and uh, what he did for the civil rights movement, but but also they were very much a team. Yes, right? yes. I want to hear about your grandmother. We're talking yes. about women. Yes, and just just about her. You know what? Yes. what do you want people to know about her and what she in particular.
2: uh, Absolutely. I think it's something in general that we all should always think about, even when we see the men who have um, participated and led uh, marches and and just whatever they're doing to create better environments for the community, that there are women that are walking alongside of them. Um, They may not have the public eye, but they couldn't do what they're doing without the women there. And my grandfather was no different. My grandmother was the accountant, the business owner. Um, she was the community organizer. She did everything. And she was able to afford herself to raise the kids and make sure the money was in the account and had the savings and determine what went where. She managed all of that. And... um we, we, our family, we have been real intentional about making sure we include her when we talk about my grandfather, because he could not have done all that he did without her. Um, and and so she always made sure. Okay, this is how much money we have. This is what we can buy. This is what you can do. You can go here, and this is your travel money. Like she made sure all of that was in place. We had family businesses. She managed all of the accounting. Um, she made sure the ordering of all the food, whatever whatever the business was, she managed that. So Janie Bell Jenkins' name has to be called alongside of my grandfather, Esau Jenkins. Um, so we say Janie Bell Jenkins or Janie Bell and Esau Jenkins. We include their names together. Uh, and I think that's the case for a lot of women. Um, they don't get that recognition. Um, and and put on pedestals. They're unsung heroes. And I don't really like to say unsung because they are singing. That the work that they do, they are making noise and they are doing incredible things. So, you know, she was the 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 rock. I mean she maintained it all. My cousins and I was just talking, we had our family Zoom meeting on Saturday, and we were saying how of all the grandkids and you know, her maintaining the businesses, like she never seemed frustrated. You know, um, she never seemed like we were aggravating her or we were getting on her nerves. She just always had this calm and this peace about her and this willing to support and to help and to gather. She just, and when I thought about it, I was like, I've never seen her raise her voice. So she was a strong woman. and she died at 86 and, and my grandfather died in 1972 and so she you know continued on with the family businesses and you know was a part of all of our her grandchildren's lives and great-grandchildren's lives so she's remarkable she is remarkable i can just see her strength in the kitchen i can see her strength in the yard i can see her strength when we're all gathering and going someplace together and i'm very much um encouraged she's one of my mentors um because i just don't know if i had not seen that model um of this woman who was multitasking and managing all projects you know the project coordinator for just about everything i don't know if i hadn't if i hadn't seen that i don't know if i could have be who i am now right. because of her
1: and there was a really um Special. I'm trying to remember if it was a a year ago or so, or it was sometime in the last year where your grandparents' bus was displayed um, on the National Mall, and
2: yes, yes.
1: And wanted to ask you about that. What that was like to see them, and and I and I do remember it was not just Esau Jenkins, it was was Esau and Jane
2: Jane. Yes. Yes, like You said that's
1: that something your family has done intentionally.
2: Intentionally, no. Um,
1: what was that experience like seeing seeing that in such a prominent?
2: Oh my gosh, the 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 wonderful thing was, I was in D.C. for the I Am for the for the museum, which happened to be at the same time that the bus was on display at the National Mall. So it was just beautiful that I could incorporate the work that I'm doing with the museum in terms of African-American history, untold stories. And here is one, you know, in my own family, my grandparents' bus. And it was just amazing to have see all these people come by and ask questions. And we were there, myself and my cousins were there to answer questions. and people were just amazed of the stories, of the wonderful things they had done with the bus in terms of transporting people and talking about voting rights.
1: explain, you know, right, they they gave people free transportation on the bus.
2: Yes. So part of that was, you know, they lived on Johns Island and people who worked in the city of Charleston, that was their only means of transportation. Um, And so while on that bus ride, you know, they were being taught the the parts of the Constitution and and helping to memorize it and um, have an understanding, not even just memorizing, but understanding what it meant to be a voter. Um, and um, so that they could become voters. And so on that bus ride, there was conversation about that. There was teaching them that part of the Constitution and um, why they were going to work and why they were coming back from work. Um, But it was was almost like a a community meeting for all those riding that bus. There was different conversations about different things that were going on in the world and kind of what you needed to do. So that bus, if that bus could speak... (laughs) I'm telling you, it would share so many amazing things that or amazing conversations that took place in that bus. So that panel of the bus is in the National African-American Museum of History and Culture. And then the entire bus, which was um, helped to be be restored by the uh, Volkswagen Historical um, Society. And they're the ones that have been displaying it um, in various places.
0: The InterTech Group and the Zucker family are proud to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment.
1: That feels so relevant still, even today in in Charleston. The question of transportation to work and voting rights, right? I mean, yes. that was decades ago, but it feels those still, are, those are still things were. we're
2: yes, about. yes. Yeah. I mean, I still have family members who live on the island who come to the head of their road and wait for people to come by to get a ride to downtown Charleston. That still exists to this very day. I mean, that's how they get to work. They rely on someone passing by, at least going their direction. And even if they don't get all the way downtown, they'll get to Maybank Highway. And then from Maybank Highway to Folly Road. And then from Folly Road to downtown where they can take a bus to the the next destination. So that still happens to this very day. Um, so people are still relying on transportation and people to get them to their significant places.
1: I wanted to ask you about what you saw in the, ch- the changes with Charleston itself um, from when you uh, lived here when you were uh, growing up and then uh, weren't in Charleston for a while and then coming back, just the what you saw that changed what stayed the same? Yes. I
2: guess what
1: what what kind of jumped out to you initially when you first moved back here? You moved back.
2: Here. You know, growing up here, like I said, my family's from Johns Island, and we had um, some businesses in downtown Charleston—one on King Street, several on King Street, and on Spring Street. Um, so I was so I was used to you know kind of hanging out on King and Spring Street, and um, and and what during my time. Um, we considered um, King Street from Calhoun Street on back back Black King Street or Black Charleston. Um, and so when I came back home, you know, a lot of those businesses were gone. Um, a lot of the places that we were used to kind of shopping and or even hanging out in, they were no longer there. So that was a bit of a disappointment not to see a lot of the African-American-owned businesses um, on King Street like as I had grown up with and even on Spring Street. So that was very different. Um, it's still very hard to to travel because I love King Street. I even love where it is now, but it's very hard not to see Black-owned businesses as a part of the new structure um, in the city. That's the most disappointing part.
1: Yeah, and I think that's it's an interesting dynamic. Now you're part of this museum and, and hoping to bring in uh, visitors. And, yes. And one of the big changes to, to Charleston, of course, is that is that focus on bringing in um, tourists, bringing in uh, yeah. visitors. But, yes. Um, yeah, of course, it's very intentional that the museum is going to be on the,
2: sure. On the peninsula.
1: Sure. Um, I guess, what else do you want to see on the peninsula change in terms of what people visually
2: see? Yeah.
1: It's, it's difficult for you to not see
2: what right business is being. Um, right.
1: Prominent street stuff. Yeah,
2: I get asked all the time, all the time, for people who don't live here. You know, take me to the Gallegichi community. Um, you know, or take me to the area where all the Gallegichi people are. And so, having to explain, it's not just a place or a destination. It is the culture. It is the people. So it's spread out. Um, it's not like I'll, I'll go over to this section and you'll see all these folks. So you know. And then, and then the next question is, well, where are the African American owned businesses? And so, even when I try to create a a document for folks to, you know, try this restaurant, go to this store, it's scattered. Mm-hmm. And so, for them not to be from here, and having to drive, you know, downtown, North Charleston, you know, uh, Somerville, West Ashley, that's a lot. And people are looking for, you know, kind of maybe to park someplace and kind of walk around and be able to, you know, see these different African-American owned businesses. So I am really hoping and praying that there's something that can be creating some type of village maybe where there is an opportunity for several African-American business owners to be kind of contained in one place or near each other, walking distance. Um, and so, you know, there's a lots of opportunity downtown. I mean, there's lots of businesses or buildings that have not been fully developed. So I'm just hoping that um, some real estate folks and the city and um, just the community at large are thinking about how to incorporate, even if they're small spaces, um, how Black-owned businesses can be a part of the peninsula and, and downtown Charleston.
1: What are some things about Charleston that either haven't changed at all or, or feel very familiar to, to what you experienced growing right up?
2: Um, haven't changed at all. I think there's still some of the mindset that, you know, when I grew up, we didn't go past Calhoun street. Like, you just knew that that was off-limits. So, as an adult, when I did go past Calhoun Street, it seemed very strange and awkward. Um, But, of course, I felt like I belonged and I should be there. But I still think, coming back home and reconnecting to friends and neighbors and community, that that dividing line is still there. Um, And... And folks, some folks have, you know, when I tell them about the um, African-American Museum, some folks don't know where that is. They don't know where their aquarium is because mm-hmm. they didn't go down there. Um, and so I think trying to eliminate those dividing lines that are there so that people can feel like this is the city I live in and this is where I'm comfortable and I have a right to be on either side of the street. Um, I think some of those things are still present. Um just because they just have been. Um, So I think when we can change our culture a little bit where we um, are are seeing each other as equals and coming together and doing events and activities together then those lines will begin to fade away. Um, But I think coming back home they were very recognizable that they were still in place.
1: I wanted to ask you about um, more of your career and and earlier in your career. Um, you studied, is it criminal justice in, in college? Is that
2: right? <laughs> yes. have a degree in criminal justice. Yeah. What, yeah.
1: Made, what made you want to, to study that?
2: So when I was younger, I um, somehow or another, I had an affinity for, for youth and uh, juvenile offenders. Um, and I think, I shouldn't say somehow, but I think because when I think of myself, how opportunities were there for me to go a different direction. And had it not been for the influences of teachers and community, of course my family, but those persons kind of really sticking by me, keeping their eye on me, making sure that I did not cross over to the other side. um, I wanted to provide that for other people, um, for other kids like myself. Um, and then when I got to college, that kind of got tweaked into social work. Um, and so when I graduated, I started doing social work, working with juvenile offenders and then working with Child Protective Services and battered women and children. So my ministry formed out of that, of caring for for folks and helping people, providing resources. Um, and so I did a lot of outreach, um, did a lot of public speaking. Um, just talking about ways in which we uh, should learn about particularly uh, domestic violence and how it impacts the families um, and our children. So that just kind of went under um, ministry work. And so pastoral care and counseling is when I went back to seminary, went to seminary, and that was my focus um, to do pastoral care and counseling because I felt like I was doing that anyway. And, um, and became a chaplain at Emory University Hospital and worked there for a number of years. And so, but part of my chaplaincy work was outreach as well. Um, I was always working with the community, working with faith communities, um, just doing projects for the hospital and patients and, and staff. So this just seemed to fit where I'm at now to, to continue to do the same thing.
1: Yeah. At what point did you realized that you wanted to to go to seminary? Did you know that for a while? I guess, what was was the role of faith in your life growing up? When did you uh, realize that that was your path?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in church, um, you know, two or three days a week um, for uh, church Sunday morning and Sunday school and um, youth events and activities. So, uh, you know, church was incorporated. Faith was definitely um, a part of who we were from the time that I can remember. So that was a natural piece. But what I did discover when I was working with bettered women and children, um, that I was providing counseling to them and giving them tools to kind of think about how to stay out of these unhealthy relationships. And I realized, you know, if there's nothing stronger than themselves to help them get out of these unhealthy relationships and stay, then they're not going to be able to do it. And I can remember just, you know, I'm counseling with women and and their kids and thinking about, um, you know, who who is the stronger power for them? And what are they going to hold on to to give them the strength to do these things? And as I was... Thinking about that for them, I heard the calling for me um, to continue this work and to become better trained um, so that I could provide um, the right counseling um, for women and children. And so my calling uh, to ministry came out of that. And and that's why I focused on pastoral care and counseling when I went to seminary.
1: Did you grow up seeing many female leaders in, in the church?
2: So it's ironic because when I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, I got involved with a very, very great church, University Park uh, Baptist Church, um, Reverend Dr. Claude Alexander. And um, you know, when people were um, being called to ministry, he was licensing folks um, to, to preach. And I remember a very, very dear friend of mine telling me that her father wasn't coming to her initial sermon um, because she was a woman. And, and I said, your dad? You know, because in my mind, like, your father is not coming to your sermon? And she was like, no, because he didn't believe in women preachers. And and I was an adult, you know, at that point, and I was really shocked because the church, the small little rural church on River Road, Johns Island, Wesley United Methodist Church, where I grew up, there was a woman associate minister. Mm. Um, so I had seen a woman in the pulpit. Um, she was the associate; she wasn't the pastor, but she was still an associate. She was still a minister. And part of our ministry at our our church. So I was shocked when I actually heard that um, and did not realize what was really happening in the world because it wasn't happening in front of me. But as I continued from there, of course, I recognized this is a major (laughs) issue um, and that really people really feel that women cannot lead um, them in ministry. And it's a very real thing. Um, I'm grateful that I didn't have that experience growing up, but my heart breaks for the people who did not have that. Um, And and even in seminary, I heard the horror stories and I still hear the horror stories. Um, I remember when I um, came back home and I hadn't joined the church yet, but I visited and um, I went up and, You know, I was considering membership, and I gave the person my name, and I said, I'm Reverend Demet Jenkins. And the person said, when he called my name, he said, Minister Demet Jenkins. And for me, if if a man had said, my name is Reverend so-and-so, you would not have diminished him to minister. And so sometimes people do it knowingly. And sometimes because the culture has said that that's what it is, he just really just, he didn't even say reverend, he said minister. And so, you know, I thought, you know, why did, you know, why did he, you know, reduce me to minister? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I didn't say minister, I said reverend. And so I think there's still a lot of learning um, for people to understand that women have a role in ministry and that um, God calls us all um, to, to lead and to provide care. So it doesn't, uh, gender doesn't matter, but there are some people who are really still stuck on that. Um, my friend's father died still believing that women didn't have a place in ministry.
1: Did that ever affect you in your own work? Was there any, ever any element of of self-doubt. I think, like you said, growing up, um, having that example I'm right. An influence.
2: Yeah. Like I had a right. To see that. Yeah, yeah. To be here. So, did
1: you ever experience that personally or more so did you see other, other women struggle with
2: that? Um, I, I can't say that it, I will say I have had some experiences here and there where the men who I may have been supervising or managing in a ministerial role, um, really did not want to take my leadership. Um, and I can recall a time where um, they actually had had a meeting on on for themselves, and came to church um, doing something that they were already told they were they should not have done. But it was sort of their way of standing. Um, we're not listening to you. And um, so my immediate supervisor was a woman um, who I told, and she in fact told the pastor, and the pastor had to reprimand them. So it was, but you know, it changed the dynamics after that, um, and I, I got to a point where I didn't even want to um, you know, kind of supervise and manage them because they were going to be intentionally defiant simply because. So, and the only reason why they listened a little more to my immediate supervisor because the pastor loved her and he counted on her. And so if he said it, then they would do it. But yeah, it was, it was a little complicated.
0: Despa Payment Solutions provides point-of-sale systems to local and nationwide businesses. Desba's mission is to educate and provide choices in point-of-sale systems to match your business needs. We listen and help to find exactly what you're looking for and at the best pricing possible. Despa's Payment Solutions is proud to be a woman-owned business and passionate about making a difference in the community. Desba was founded by Linda Hancock in 2003 and has built a reputation around the Charleston area as a competent, hardworking, and beneficial business partner. Working with Desba benefits everyone, not just your business. Desba is a company with community at its heart.
1: What would be your guidance to, uh, I would say, especially a young woman who may be um, considering uh, a leadership role in
2: ministry? I think for anybody, male or female, you need a mentor. Yeah. Um, two, you should always think about, you know, I think uh, our pastors get really, really eager, especially when they're young. They want to be everything for their house of faith um, and, you know, find themselves all over the place. I'm going to be available to you, be available to you and you. And that you have to think about um, what I would tell. I I was adjunct professor at Emory uh, Candler School of Theology. So first year seminary students that whatever, if you're going into the pastorate, you need to think about what your package looks like Mm -hmm. and you need to take off a Sunday every quarter. That would be my recommendation because that might work right now you know, that you're here every Sunday, you're available, but at some point your body is going to say, okay, I'm, I'm tired. I'm exhausted, but I've already set the precedence that I'm here and I can be here and I can, you know, come visit you. Like you need to take that Sunday off one to rest, to give yourself an extra day. And then secondly, if you have a family, normally, if you're traveling out of town, you have to come back on Saturday an early Saturday because you got to prepare for Sunday at least this gives your family another night um, that you can stay over someplace or even if you're at home that you don't have to worry about coming in so that you're caring for yourself even before you know you need to care for yourself you'll be grateful that you've added this into your package so I think having a mentor um you know really engage in someone and, and not just a friend because sometimes it's very hard for friends to tell friends the truth right because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings but to get someone that who you don't have that kind of tie and relationship with but you have a connection and that an trusted trusting relationship so that they can tell you what they see you're doing or not doing um, and and you can kind of face that but to not walk in this journey alone um, and that some minds you're not going to change. You know, there are people who have beliefs, whether that's about women, whether that's about politics, whether it's about race, gender, sexuality. There are some people who are just not going to change. And so how are you going to manage that if you are the pastor there or, or in a ministerial leadership role? So just have somebody to walk alongside with you so you don't feel like you're walking alone.
1: Who are your mentors? <laughs>
2: so definitely my mother um that's where my call to ministry really came um you know there are people who you might hear and say you know they woke up three o'clock in the morning and the, the sky was parted and and i don't knock that i mean that's some people's experience but my mother and my grandparents were definitely models my mom never passed a stranger on the street so if their car was broken down Or if she saw people walking, she was going to pull her car over and find out what the problem was. Um, If they needed a ride, she brought them to our car. If they needed to just sit while they were waiting for a ride, then we sat there and waited till their ride came. Or she took them to our house so that they could make a phone call. Um, And then while they were there, she put out her best china and fed them, even if it was just snacks. Um, but she never let people be on the side of the road, uh, stranded. Um, when people of different traditions came to the door, she welcomed them into the, our home. So I just saw a woman who cared about people. It didn't matter if they were different from her or not. She didn't treat them any different. She always was welcoming. And of course, my grandparents, who cared about every single person, um, not just about voting rights, but cared about their e- equality, their equal rights. Um, if somebody didn't have food, my grandmother was packing up things to send down the road for somebody else because she knew their situation or their circumstances. So, you know, ministry is about caring for people, It's um, about being thoughtful about recognizing what the needs are um, and and making sure that you can't do everything but connecting the people who can be supportive and helpful. So I, I'm just grateful um, that I was able to see people care about other folks because it soft, softened me um, and allowed me to, to be compassionate and, and thoughtful. Um, and, you know, I just... It's one of those things I, I've i always done. When, when these shootings um, started happening, I guess, about 10 years ago, I think it was at Virginia Tech, might have been one of the first ones. You know, I often think about, of course, the victims. And our hearts naturally go to those those persons. But I also think about the perpetrator's families and, um, and kind of what they're going through. Um, and so I would always try to find an address or, you know, to send a card to them to say, you know, you know, God is, is with you. And there are people in this community who are thinking and praying for you as well. And so I never try to forget those people. Um, and I, I still do that to this very day. Um, I'm very intentional about, okay, how can I figure out how to get this card or something to those families as well? Um, because they're hurting too.
1: Have you ever received a, a response?
2: No. I have not. I send them out to first responders, um, you know, even if the fire department, the police department, whomever, and then definitely to both families. And I know that the the victims' families they're getting probably bags full of stuff, so it's very hard for them to send a thank you card out. But you know, maybe there are others who think like me too, who are making sure that those that perpetrators' family is is remembered, Mm -hmm. and thought about, and and letting them know that. There are people who are, who love you and are praying for you as well, because we know that this is a very difficult time for you. So I have not gotten responses back, yeah. don't expect to. I just, I pray that it gets landed to them and that they receive it.
1: I know we, we talked a little bit at the beginning of this conversation, just about this, this time and your role with the museum and still trying to connect with, with people oh. Um, maybe looking beyond this time we're in now and and maybe to the point of of when the museum opens right we're looking at early 2022 Mm -hmm. what are you most excited about in in your role you know what is what is that thing that you're just um, ready to do
2: yes I I definitely want to see our faith communities do a couple of things you know one of the things in my role I work closely with the uh, director for the Center for um, uh, Family Research, and so we want our faith communities to know that if there are any parishioners or community people in your in your area that have their family Bibles, where their loved ones or their ancestors have put, you know, important dates. And marriages, deaths, births, things of that nature, if you have a Bible, that we want to scan that Bible for to our digital library. And then we'll give you an acid-free box to maintain and preserve that Bible. But that applies to pictures, marriage license, funeral obituaries, um, any of those things that have names and dates, because that's a part of research. When people come in to do their research, you know, we have names and places. And so, I want to see more of that. I want to see a lot of those folks, you know, you know, showing us their Bibles and the the, the obituaries. And, and then wanting to come to the museum, we have a little studio to host events there, whether that be a Bible study, whether that be some um, spiritual event or program, that we have the space to do that and that they're already saying, yes, we're going to sign up for something next month. We want to do this particular activity. That's what I want to see. Um, I want to see our faith communities be members of this museum, you know, so that they know that they are a part of creating history and helping us to tell these untold stories. Because a lot of our communities, people are not in history books, but they've done amazing things within their communities. We want to know those names. We want to know who those people are. One, so that we can honor and celebrate them for the the work that they've done. And then we will have a a digital, South Carolina will have a digital mapping table. So when a visitor comes from California and they put their finger on, I don't know, 96 South Carolina, what populates are special things that have occurred in that town, special people. So I want to see a ton of that. I want people to get to know the folks in this area and around the world and just use our museum for so many events and activities. That's my vision.
1: Yeah, and I think it's so so interesting that you have just this great story just within your, your family too. And like we talked about before, um, not just remembering Esau Jenkins, yes. name, but but, but Janie B. Jenkins' name. yes. And um, I wonder, it, is there anything in particular, a particular lesson or just way of living that you learned from her in particular? I know you just talked about your your mother for a little bit, mm-hmm. um, but what's what's a lesson you think of that, that you connect with your grandmother?
2: So I um, my niece, who was uh, 13 years younger than me, and when she was 18, she had gotten pregnant. And she, you know, was scared, didn't tell anybody um, until the day she was having the baby. She didn't show much at all, so we didn't know she was pregnant. Um, And she was like my child, you know. I I loved her. I was helping to raise her. And when I heard that, I, I think I was disappointed that, you know, she had had a baby young and I didn't know. And then I was disappointed in myself. I thought, what did I do wrong for her to have gotten pregnant? And so I remember she and I just kind of struggled with, you know, how to be in relationship at this point in time. And so I, I wasn't talking to her much, but it was bothering me. And I remember I called my grandmother and I was just like, I'm just having a hard time. I'm not really talking to her. And, you know, my grandmother said to me, she said, you know, you have been there for those children since they were born for it was my niece and two nephews. You've been a good aunt to them. You've helped raise them. You've provided for them. And she said, but if any time this child needs you, it is right now. You were there all before, and that was great. They were growing up and you were a part of their lives. But this is the time she really needs you because she doesn't know what she's doing. She's a new mother and she does not need to feel alone or be alone. And I mean, that it may not sound profound, but for me, her saying that to me, the, my whole world changed. And it felt like my burdens just went away. Like, you, if you thought you needed to be there before, you really need to be there now. She needs you now, even more so. And it was just something just that simple that she said to me that awakened me. And, and, and from that moment, I, you know, I called and I apologized, but we had a very different loving relationship and it was just things like that. She would always say, you know, without thinking about it, I just picked up the phone. I don't know what she was doing on her end, but she always imparted things to you that made you think, that made you be reflective and to think about your actions and, um, You know, she just had a entrepreneur spirit. She knew how to manage businesses and and multi-businesses at one time. So if I had to say I learned things from her, she just was a good manager. She was a kind person. As I said earlier, I never saw her angry or, or upset. And so how do you live life and not display frustration? You know, life is frustrating sometimes. And um, when you she raised, you know, she had thirteen kids, and and then she had all of us grandkids, and all these businesses and a husband to to maintain. So, she just was remarkable, and and I I admire her. I would want to be like her in so many ways, and I hope that anything that she imparted in me, that it's she's proud of, you know, how I represent myself, and um, and and my cousins. I think we all. We all always talk about how proud we are of them and how proud we want them to be of us. So I pray that that's that I'm making her smile as a warrior woman.
1: I'm so glad that we could talk about her today and and talk about uh, you and your experiences. And and just thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Have you ever had to wait three days for someone to service your copier? Does your office furniture belong in a museum? Are your meetings being disrupted by poorly installed and overly complicated conferencing and AV equipment? The Office People is proud to be the largest local provider of office technology, conferencing systems, audiovisual equipment, and office interiors in the Carolinas. We believe that locals do it better. Contact The Office People, the source for all your office needs.
0: We the Women is a special series of the Post and Courier in celebration of the 100th anniversary of
1: the ratification of the 19th Amendment. To enjoy all 19 interviews, visit postandcourier.com backslash we the women.